Psalm 89, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 28, My steadfast love I will, I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish my, his offsprings forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and the iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be forced to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. This is God's word. May God save and sanctify us through his holy word. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for reading God's word for us. Good morning, I'm Oliver. I'm one of the pastors serving together with the elders team here at Grace Baptist Church. And beloved, as a church, we aspire to train and send. We aspire to train um, men and women to be faithful and fruitful ministers of the word. And we, we aspire and hope to send them out to, to minister, to serve other churches, to serve the world for the sake of the gospel. So there are times whereby uh, we would actually ask faithful men to come to take the pulpit and to exercise their God-given gifts of preaching. So today is my great uh, pleasure and privilege to introduce Brian. Brian, you can come on up. You know, I, I love this brother. I've known him for a number of years. And I, uh, I've known him to be a careful, diligent student of the Word. I know that he seeks always to be faithful to God's Word. And I know that when he speaks, he speaks not only with clarity, he speaks with a unique uh, blend of both seriousness and humour. It's to say that your humour is sometimes uh, quite unique. Thank yeah. you, Ollie. Yeah. thank you. Um, so it gives me great pleasure to have him come up here to serve us by preaching God's word to us this morning. And I, I hope as a church, let's now encourage him and keep him in prayer as he, uh, as he preaches God's word to us this morning. So let me just pray for him. And then uh, we can hear from uh, God's word. Father, I want to thank you and praise you for raising men and women um, in this church, Lord, who, who seeks to be faithful and fruitful in ministry. Lord, we pray today, especially for Brian, as he preaches uh, your word to us. We pray that your spirit uh, leads and empower him, that you help him to speak with uh, clarity and conviction. And most of all, help me to be faithful to declare your word and your gospel. Lord, we pray for us as we hear your word. Uh, may your, spirit, your word do a work in our hearts and may we receive your word with great joy. Lord, we thank you, we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Over to you, Brian. Thank you very much, Ollie. Okay. Ah, can you all hear me all right? Thank you. Uh, good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I'm Brian and I serve as one of the deacons of the children's ministry. Today we'll be continuing our series in Genesis, Generations of Grace. And I got to tell you, I, I, if I can just be really honest and I'll confess, 
that when I was preparing today's sermon, I struggled immensely to see how this chapter of Genesis 34 fit in with our series, Generations of Grace. I wasn't prepared for what was coming because this tragic, tragic chapter records the story of how the rape of one young lady had led to a disaster. So our text this morning is in Genesis 34 and 35. And if you have your Bibles, you could uh, open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Genesis 34. And we'll begin our study of God's Word this morning in Genesis 34. Now you might be wondering, hang on a minute, weren't things going really well in Genesis 32 and 33? Last week, Elder Jonathan had actually preached through Genesis 32 and 33. And he went through... Uh, some great chapters of Jacob's life, right? When he was faced with the prospect of meeting his older brother Esau, he prayed a really humble prayer upon God. God, I am not worthy of all the grace that you are showing. Please help me. And, And incredibly, in Genesis 33, God allowed an amazing reconciliation to take place in that chapter. Through Jacob's transformation and through all that wonderful grace that God had shown him in the past few chapters, you might be wondering, what is Genesis 34 doing right here? Can't we just skip Genesis 34 and go straight over to Genesis 35? But no, we can't. We can't just skip over the inconvenient parts of Scripture that we find very difficult to deal with. I believe that the Holy Spirit had specifically planted Genesis 34 right here, right here in the story to teach us some very important truths. Now, it would do us good to actually pay attention to the structure of the text. Genesis 34, a very deep, dark chapter, is sandwiched in between two incredible chapters of Jacob's life. Genesis 33 on one hand, where he saw an amazing reconciliation with his brother. And Genesis 35, on the other hand, which we will come to in just a short while. And both these chapters, the marks of God's grace is incredibly, is so obvious, you can see it through these two chapters. And the brightness of these two chapters are contrasted with the darkness that we see in Genesis 34. I think some of you here who have been Christians for some time may understand what I mean by a spiritual roller coaster, right? The, the Christian life is not always smooth sailing. And there may be periods of time where you feel really close and intimate with God, but some tragedy happens in your life and there is somehow a pew, you know, a, 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 like a dip whether it is a tragedy or some sin that weighs heavily and you feel distant from God. But in His grace, you experience His mercy and He restores you into a relationship of favor. This spiritual roller coaster, I think some of you might know what I'm talking about. And perhaps the structure of Genesis 33 and pew in 34 and back up in 35 may be, uh, may be able to teach us something about the Christian life. Why don't we go to God in prayer? Our Lord and our Saviour Jesus Christ, 
Tune our hearts to sing your grace. We are sinners, we are wretched to the core, yet we are loved and pursued intensely by the hound of heaven. Keep us close to your bosom, O God. We cry pardon for our many infirmities and our sins because we have reduced your majesty to just a fragment of our imagination. And so we pray, O God, that you will be magnified in our corrupt hearts. Give us the fullness of godly grief that ever trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and depends wholly upon you. Grant us that through the tears of our self-despair that we will see even more clearly the brightness and the glories of the precious saving cross. Oh, abide in us, Lord Jesus, as we seek to abide in you. Amen. Our text today, Genesis 34 and 35, the main point that I like to put forth to you is despite how God's people live unfaithfully to Him, He doesn't give up on them. No matter how grievously they might sin against Him, He never ever once would give up on them. Those are the two parts. Genesis 34, despite how God's people living unfaithfully to Him, and Genesis 5, 35 tells us he doesn't give up on them. Now, before we begin our text in Genesis 34, I'd like to put up a disclaimer that the sins committed by the characters in the text that we will read are not always, they do not always belong to God's people. However, I've chosen this heading for us specifically because the sins committed here can be committed by us as well as God's people. Just putting it out there. Genesis 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. We were first introduced to this lady Dinah as Jacob's only daughter in Genesis 30. Of all the sons and all the children that Jacob had, Dinah was his only daughter. And verse 2. And when Shechem, Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite. Let's just pause there for just a bit. If you recall from last week's sermon, Elder Jonathan had actually brought us through Genesis 33, right? If you look at the last few verses of Genesis 33, Jacob had told his brother, yeah, 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 y'all go ahead. I will link up with y'all in, in Seir. You know, my family, some of them are really frail, some children. I will link up with you later on. That was a little lie that Jacob had told his brother because eventually... Jacob doesn't go to Seir, he goes instead to this place called Sukkoth and lands up outside the city of Shechem. Shechem, uh, this area also bears the name of the prince of the land, Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite that we read in this text. And he does something extremely disgraceful in verse 2. Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, and lay with her and humiliated her. No matter how you look at it, the Bible classifies Shechem's actions as rape. And no matter what happens afterwards, verse 3 tells us, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And so Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. And now Jacob had heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with 
his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. No matter how Shechem had spoke tenderly to Dinah, we cannot excuse that the action that he did was just rape. He defiled this young lady. And Jacob, at this point, chooses not to say anything. Let's read on in the story. This is where verse 6, Hamor, which is Shechem's father, comes to approach Jacob. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But he more spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem belongs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favour in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bright price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. You see, Shechem and Hamor offer some degree of harmonious integration. I do not know whether this went down where Hamor says, Hey bro, no hard feelings, okay? You know, my, my son, he really loves your daughter lah. And you give your daughter, I give my son, and we be one big happy family. It's I way. And he offers some great offer. He says, you come, we, it's one big family, right? You can have all these economic blessings, right? You can dwell in this land, trade in it, get property. You'll be prosperous. It's going to be a win-win situation for us. Even Shechem, he has this great name your bride price attitude. Whatever you name, I will give. Friends, behind this cloak of generosity, we notice that in the text, there is not a single apology. There is not a single admission of Shechem's sin. There is no, I am sorry for what I did to your daughter. Nothing like that in the text. Even worse, it seemed as if Shechem and Hamor could somehow use marriage and money and these things somehow can magically allow Dinah's disgrace to just go away. They were as if treating Dinah as some object, degrading her to be some object that could be traded. Horrendous things, but it only gets worse. Verse 13 the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. They had no interest in any kind of economic integration or harmonious integration. No, they, they chose to deceive Shechem and Hamor. Why? Their motivation was very simple. The second half of verse 13 tells us that because they had defiled their sister Dinah. This was their deceit. They said to them, we cannot do this thing. To give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that will be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. 
Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves. And we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. They choose to use God's holy right of circumcision in their deception. You see, the great irony is this. Shechem may have defiled Jacob's daughter, Dinah. But the sons of Jacob here are guilty of defiling, desecrating God's holy sign, the sign of circumcision as introduced to us in Genesis 17, was a sign in which God had intention to set apart His people as holy. These are my people, those who are circumcised, and these are the people whom I have set apart to be a blessing to the nations. Now, and now, the sons of Jacob are using God's special sign and desecrating it, cheapening it, and using it in their horrendous, deceptive plan. And unfortunately, their plan works. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man, verse 19 tells us, the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. So here uh, Shechem was, he was absolutely delighted. Yes, the only thing I need to do is to get circumcised. And everybody else, all the guys in my city, they are to get circumcised as well. Okay, let's go do it. He runs back and he gathers all the men of his city and he tells them, look, we have just struck a great deal with Jacob and his family. And all of us, we just have to get circumcised. This is where it gets really dark. Verse 25, after all the men were circumcised, on the third day, while they, the men of Shechem, while they were still sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, they took their swords and they came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever there was in the city and whatever there was in the field. All their wealth, all their, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Bible commentator John MacArthur comments on this dastardly deed that a massacre of all males and the wholesale plunder of the city went way beyond the reasonable, wise, justly deserved punishment of one man. This was a disproportionate retaliation by the sons of Jacob. Did the fate of the entire city of Shechem needed to bear that punishment? I think the words of the Lord would be Jacob himself, who has actually since remained silent in the text so far. And finally, in verse 30 onwards, he speaks up. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. You see, Jacob, he does not condemn 
the use of circumcision, which is God's holy sign. He does not condemn the rape of his daughter, Dinah. He does not speak out against this dastardly deed done by his two sons. And when he does speak up, the only thing he says, hey, why you do this kind of thing? Next time, if they see our family and they attack me, then we all sell it already. We are so small. Jacob was not interested in anything else but himself. He was not concerned about his daughter and her dignity. That is why his sons, in, re- in response to his passivity, right? his son says, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You didn't do anything. You even tried to accept this harmonious integration. You know, if you tried to accept their offer, right? You'll be treating our sister like a prostitute. Well, at least we did something. Tragedy after tragedy. And what is shocking in this entire chapter is that the sins committed by the characters here are God's own people, not just outsiders like Shechem and Hamor, but the sons of Jacob and Jacob himself are portrayed in a rather negative light. If Genesis 34 is meant to be our teacher today, then we need to ask ourselves, does this text deal with the sin that is in my heart? You may not be like Shechem, who have committed a violent sexual assault on somebody else, but could you have been like a Hamor, treating and degrading other people as objects? Could you have been like the sons of Jacob, using your position of authority in deceiving others and manipulating others, especially those who have somehow wronged you? Or could you be guilty of blindness? You see, friends, there are two types of blindness that we see in this text. The first type of blindness is that of Simeon and Levi, where they were just so blinded by their rage, blinded by their, what Shechem, and he, Shechem has done to their sister. They were so outraged by this fact that they decided, I am going to take justice into my own hands. I don't care what standards of punishment are there. I determine what is right and what punishment should they get. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Friends, have you ever let your rage and your anger cause you to retaliate in somewhat of a disproportionate measure? Or even the second kind of blindness is also as bad. The blindness of Jacob, where he is just completely blind to the needs of the vulnerable, the needs of his own daughter. Friends, I want to speak to one more group of people today. And this group is easily neglected. Not surprising because she doesn't say anything in the text. Yes, I want to speak to the diners that are in our midst. I want to speak to all those who have been the silent, helpless victims of abuse. You are not the one who wronged others or committed the wrong. I, I may not know what you have gone through, 
But God, our Heavenly Father, He knows. He knows you. He cares for you. He loves you. And He utterly hates the wrong that was done to you. Psalm 10 tells us that, Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. If your experience is similar to that of Dinah in Genesis 34, then may I invite you to come with me to the cross. The cross was a symbol of shame, was a symbol of disgrace. And friends, the way the God of the Bible deals with shame and disgrace was to take it all upon Himself on that cross. Our Lord Jesus, He died on that cross, taking your sin, taking your disgrace, taking all of your disgrace and regret on that cross and dying for you. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As, as from one who men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The great hymn writer puts it poetically. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a saviour! And hallelujah, friends, because Genesis 35 is not the end. Genesis 34 is not the end. We have Genesis 35. The only other character that remains silent in the text is none other than God himself. Genesis 35 is where God, he finally speaks. In verse 1, God says to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. This is incredible. And I am so glad that I am not God. And I am so glad that I'm not in charge of Jacob's blessings. Because in spite of all the horrendous things that took place in Genesis 34, I mean, you might have expected, right? That at this point, God will see and like face palm, and you might think that, oh, wow, Jacob, your family, very jalat. I, I think I'm just going to send another flood and just wipe you all out, and I'll just start again. But no, God doesn't do that. In fact, the most surprising thing in this entire text is that God, he speaks up and he says, God, Jacob, I am not done with you yet. I am not finished with you yet. And it's as if that God is giving them a second chance. Arise and go to Bethel. Make an altar to worship me there, is what God says. You know, 
in, in this command in Genesis 35 verse 1 where God tells Jacob, go up to Bethel, Bethel is not a brand new place to Jacob. He has been there before and we have definitely have encountered Bethel before in Genesis 28. You might have recalled that in Genesis 28 when he was on the run from his brother Esau, Jacob falls asleep and he has this magnificent dream of angels ascending and descending on this great ladder. In Genesis 28, God stands atop of this ladder and he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. God blesses him, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. They shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God says here in Genesis 28, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. You see, friends, in, if we compare the text in Genesis 28 with the text in Genesis 35, we have to ask one very important question. Was Jacob meant to be dwelling in Shechem this entire time? Could it be that he was dwelling in disobedience throughout his entire fiasco when he was in Shechem? I think so, actually. Because Genesis 28 here tells us that God had clearly said, I will bring you back to this land, i.e. I will bring you back here to Bethel. And maybe that was God's original command this entire time. Jacob, your original destination was meant to be Bethel. Could all the disaster of Genesis 34 be averted if Jacob had obeyed God's command to go straight to Bethel? That one, I don't know. Right? Genesis 34 really did happen. But that's why I don't know. What I do know is that now in Genesis 35, Jacob finally takes up leadership in his family. He finally stands up and he tells his family in verse 2, put away all the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and that I may make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so they, Jacob's family, gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and all the rings that were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was at Shechem. Shechem was a place, a symbol of disgrace and sin. And Jacob knew that if they were going to make this spiritual pilgrimage back to God, he needed to rid his family of any kind of polytheistic belief they had. Give me all your foreign gods. Go and change your clothes. All of this was symbolic of, of putting on a, a, a new, uh, turning over a new leaf and, and just changing your garments. I'm going to leave all my old ways behind and I am going to follow God. We see God's grace in giving them a fresh start. But not only that, the next thing that God does along the way is that He grants them protection along the way. I think verse 5 is very interesting. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. You know, 
Back in Genesis 34, we read of how Jacob was just so concerned. Hey, you made me stink in the eyes of the Canaanites and the Perizzites. If we go out, if we were to journey outside, they confirm will come and attack us. Ah. Why you do this kind of thing? But you see that God specifically addresses Jacob's fear that he said in Genesis 34 by causing a terror from God to fall upon the surrounding cities so that they could journey in peace. Now I'm sure that Jacob's family would know that this is the God whom Jacob has spoken about in verse 3. This is the God who answers me in the day of my distress. And this is the God who has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob eventually arrives at Bethel and he builds an altar in obedience to God's command in verse 1. And amazingly, God appeared to Jacob again in verse 9 onwards. Let's read on what God says to him. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. This is incredible. God amazingly does two things. The first thing that God does is that he confirms Jacob's change of name. We read about this last week where Jacob was wrestling with God at Penuel and God asked him, what is your name? Jacob replies, I am Jacob. I am the deceiver. I am the one who constantly strives with men. And God says, no, your name shall now be called Israel because you have striven with God and you have also striven with men and you have prevailed. God confirms Jacob's change of name from Jacob to Israel, signifying a change in his destiny. The second thing that God does is that he reaffirms him of all the covenantal blessings. And this is incredible, friends. I mean, God doesn't like discount, hey, you know, I see your Genesis 34, ah. I think I'm going to remove some of the blessings from you. No, God doesn't do that. He doesn't withdraw or withhold any amount of blessings from Jacob. He continues and reaffirms his blessings to Jacob in full. This is a God, in spite of all the tragedy that has happened in Genesis 34, he hasn't given up on Jacob he is still in the process of fulfilling his promises to Jacob and his family. What he has promised from Abraham long ago continues now even to, Jake, to Abraham's descendants, to Jacob and his family. Earlier, Uncle Eric has read for us Psalm 89. And Psalm 89 also was a call to worship that Transin had read for us. I find that this psalm is extremely interesting because it speaks about how this covenantal God continues to bless His people. 
I'm going to reread some of the lines from Psalm 89. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love. I will not be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once and for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. This is incredible. You see, friends, all the promises of God would come true. First to Abraham, now to Jacob. Psalm 89 speaks about how God had promised and made promises to David, King David. David was one of the royal descendants from Abraham and Jacob's line that God had promised. And the Bible does not shy away from the faults and the sins of these characters. Their sins are clearly there. But surely, God always fulfills His promises to them. Who is this God? He is none other than God Almighty, as what Genesis 35 verse 11 tells us. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. We were first introduced to this great title many chapters back in Genesis 17. He is the God who will fulfill His promises. How should we respond to such a God? Well, Jacob's response is instructive for us. Verse 14 tells us, And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. You might recognize that Jacob's actions are quite familiar. Why? because he had done something very similar back in Genesis 28. Genesis 28, where God appeared to him. You know, Jacob woke up from that dream and he said, surely God must be in this place. And then he set up a pillar and he poured a drink offering on, uh, to worship God. But back then in Genesis 28, Jacob kind of made a conditional vow. Listen to what he said in Genesis 28, verse 20. If God will be with me, if God will keep me in the way that I go, if God will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, if God will allow me to come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord will be my God. But now, in Genesis 35, he is back in battle. Same place, same God who appeared to him. Same response of worship but a very very different man this Jacob now knows that God Almighty is the real deal he is the one that has truly been with him who answers him in the day of his distress this is the God who has always stuck with him through thick and thin all the sins that he had done all the drama that happened in Uncle Laban's house this is the God who continued to be faithful to Jacob. And now, perhaps he is standing at that altar with a new depth of devotion to God. Have we experienced the kindness of God in our lives, especially in the roller coasters in our Christian lives? 
How is God calling each and every one of us here today to repent of our sin, our idolatry, our dastardly deeds? How is He calling us to repent and return to Him, to return to Christ and to be restored into a right relationship of devotion to Him? Allow me to make a few closing remarks at the end of Genesis 35. The end of Genesis 35 closes with two deaths. The deaths of Rachel, who is Jacob's beloved wife, and the deaths of uh, Isaac, Jacob's father. It's a little bit ironic when Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, passes on. She passes on seemingly due to a complication of childbirth. Right? Her, she bears a second son um, whom she originally names as Ben-Oni, and then Jacob changes his name from Ben-Oni to Benjamin. The former meaning, son of my sorrow, but perhaps Jacob saw some hope in this young boy, and so he calls him Benjamin, meaning son of my right hand. Following Rachel's death, Reuben, one of Jacob's other sons, in fact, Reuben was son number one, the very first son that Jacob ever had. He was the son of Jacob and Leah. Okay? Um, Leah was, uh, was Jacob's first wife. Reuben does something really sketchy in verse 22. When Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. You know, I mean, if you take both Genesis 34 and Genesis 35 together, right? 34, we saw Simeon and Levi. What did they do to the Shechemites? And then Genesis 35, we see Reuben going up to commit some kind of sexual indecency with his father's concubine. The text constantly tells us that Jacob's sons are just bozos, you know? And, and you are wondering, how can God fulfill his promises through these individuals? Subsequently, in the closing verses, we read of Isaac's death. And like every single patriarch that passes on, we have to ask the question, did, God, did, they, did they see God's promises come to fruition in their lifetimes? Did they see God bring about everything that he had promised about? Well, through Isaac's 180 years, perhaps he didn't see it fully, but I'm sure he greeted them in part because Hebrews in the New Testament comments on each of these individuals that passed on in Genesis. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. These people saw God fulfilling His promises in spite of all the sin and unfaithfulness in their lives. They knew God to be faithful. Despite all the tragedies that happened to Dinah in Genesis 34, despite everything that we see so far in Genesis, God was always in the business of fulfilling His promises. He doesn't give up on them. And they knew that in spite of all their sin and their sorrow, their disgrace, how they have continuously rebelled against Him, God never gives up on them, gives them a second chance, and still fulfills 
His grand promises to bless them. Our sins might be many, but His mercy is far, far, far more. Father God, we want to give you thanks for the great graciousness that you constantly show us in your life, in our lives. We are undeserving. As Jacob had mentioned back in Genesis 32, Oh Lord, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love. I am not worthy of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Yes, God, we are not worthy. But you, O oh God, have still chosen to bless us and bless us so richly. And what can we say, O oh God, but thank you. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has paid for my sin and has allowed me to come back into a loving relationship with you, O oh God. We ask that you would transform our heart, all our hearts, that might be able to seek you and love you every single day of our lives. We thank you for the great grace that trumps even the most sinful of our moments. In Christ's name I pray.